Hey, everyone, you're listening to my beautiful crystal clear voice right now. You won't be doing that for some of this episode because you had some technical issues this week. And I apologize profusely. Now on to the show. Warning. Spoilers in this episode four. Peacemaker ongoing at HBO Max up to episode four just came out in recent days. So there's spoilers up to episode four. Book of Boba Fett till episode uh, four as well. So beware. And Yellow Jackets, the entirety of season one. There's spoilers, spoilers, spoilers all about that. Please finish Yellow Jackets. If you have not watched it, don't listen to our Yellow Jackets conversation until you've watched it. This is your warning. Don't get spoiled. My name is Jason Concepcion, and welcome to Next Story Vision, the crypto podcast where we dive deep into your favorite shows, favorite movies, comics, pop culture, and more on today's episode. Previously on, Rosie and I will discuss a panoply of news, discuss the ongoing Peacemaker series on HBO. Our good friend Jason Manzukas joins us to talk about the book of Boba Fett on the airlock finale of Yellow Jackets. Oh, what a show. Nerd out. A listener pitches us on Super Sentai, something you can check out. And in the end game, what would we do to survive the wilderness? And would we even survive if you're not caught up with anything we're covering or just want to hop around the episode? Check out the timestamps in our show notes. Joining me today, one of the best, one of the greatest ever. I was just perusing her library, her archive of incredible work on the Nerdist website. You should check that out too and get yourself smart. She is writer, comic scholar, Rosie Knight. Rosie, how are you? Hello, I'm good. How are you? I'm fantastic. It's fantastic <laughs> to see you. Okay, let's first up, let's get into previously on and just start chopping it up. First story, Microsoft acquires Activision Blizzard or is in the process of doing so for a staggering near 70 billion dollar fee <laughs> it is uh it is a titanic move uh to acquire activision blizzard the publisher and developer that has given us and continues to give us such properties as overwatch overwatch 2 delayed uh for an unknown amount of time warcraft uh the massive call of duty franchise and more, Candy Crush, if you're into mobile gaming, a real weakness that Microsoft Xbox has had. Mm -hmm. um, this you know, comes on the heels of a, a staggering uh, workplace, toxic workplace lawsuit that the various employees of Activision Blizzard have uh, levied against the company. Uh, what are your thoughts on this, Rosie? I mean, that is so much money. It's so much money. And there's been a, a significant criticism of Microsoft against Activision CEO Bobby Kotick, who will get a, a, just a gigantic golden yeah. parachute payday on the way out the door, despite having, you know, uh, led the company during this very toxic time. Yeah, I think it's the ultimate um, conundrum of our times. And we kind of talk about this a lot because of the things that we love and the people they're owned by. And I think it's this, you know, this is a just an unimaginable amount of money being spent. And it makes a lot of it's sense. Like, crazy. It does. They, they will become the third largest gaming company after this, Microsoft. You know, they, this is a huge acquisition. It makes a lot of sense with the Xbox and everything. But the biggest thing is like, 
the silver lining you could argue is well that guy's gonna go even if he gets all this money and maybe the workplace you know will be better but it's that hard thing of like will it be better under a huge corporation and kind of like so i think it's very 2022 it's very much i hope that maybe this means if you're getting bought by a company for you know nearly 70 billion dollars maybe that means good payouts and good kind of looking after the people who were hurt and like had to work under activision like that is that realistic i don't know i know they'd already reached a settlement but maybe microsoft's going to try and be like give them some more money to make them happier or something so yeah and he would again bobby you know this deal will unfold over you know 12 to 18 months mm-hmm. there are provisions in there uh that stipulate that uh, Microsoft will pay Activision Blizzard something like $3 billion in case the uh, the government comes down and says, actually, this is, you can't do this yes, merger. Yes, I was Ubi. wondering so, if so it's a compete kind of... That's formulated in, 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 in case there's a uh, antitrust case levied by the government. But, you know, you can, we can think about this, you, you mentioned it being very 2022. I, you know, you can think about this in the kind of uh, streaming wars mm-hmm. context of a lot of the way that digital media has moved over the last 10 years. This is, this is a play for content, you know, like uh, Activision Blizzard has hundreds of millions of active users that are playing Warcraft, Diablo, Call of Duty, like all the time, Call of Duty is in a buying mess. DLCs the all right the time. Now, but buying DLCs, <laughs> right? So, you know, much in the same way that Netflix wants to have more users than Apple or Amazon or, and vice versa. This is Microsoft really wanting to strengthen uh, their fundamentals. They're, they have, you know, I'm an Xbox user. They have a, a really good service called Xbox Game Pass. This gives them mm-hmm. a bigger library. Um, you, I've seen a lot of reporting saying, oh, this is how they compete with the metaverse. Yeah. Yes and no, kind like, of. But sure. Sure, but this is a big play, and it shores up a lot of weaknesses that Microsoft has had, including, like, a real dearth of, exclusive titles which is a super strength of like sony and ps4 yet like ps4 and 5 this gives them like exclusives yeah what do you think about like buying this massive games company like how soon do lots of those games suddenly not become available on other consoles and how soon does this become like a pure catalog move i think by the time this deal is finalized should it become finalized we'll see it happen then much in the same way that it happened with minecraft and i don't think it'll be like you won't be able to play mm-hmm. skyrim 2 or whatever you know on playstation i just think it'll be you won't be able to buy it for a year or yes. something on playstation after it comes out you know mm-hmm. like certain uh it won't be like a god of war thing or god of war you just can never play god of war on microsoft i think it'll be delays and then maybe there will be certain games that you just will never be able to play on, on yeah. sony so a uh, big news if you're a game fan and just like i'm still staggered at the price tag it's truly unbelievable okay next up amazon released the uh the first real teaser trailer for the lord of the Rings mm-hmm. series uh, it's just basically a title announcement, the Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power. So I think what it's telling us is that we're going to see the uh, the young, hot Sauron story. Yes. Uh, Sauron coming into possession of the Ring of Power and, and perhaps the, uh, the production of the other rings that were given to men and elves and, and so on. Yeah. Uh, what did you think of this? So I thought it was like very visually cool. And I like that it has the poem 
you know, it has yes. like explaining who has all the rings and and there's not very much known about this era, but like I think it's like the appendix B of Lord of the Rings is like where to look yeah. if you want to kind of know where they're going. But the thing that I thought was really cool, so the the title sequence is like outrageous and it's kind of this yeah. like they burn the letters in. But Amelia Emberwing at IGN actually got an exclusive where she was there when they made the title sequence and it's all mm. practical. So it's oh, wow. it's actually like a massive piece of wood that they burnt with real lava. There's like a really cool video oh, wow. of it on IGN. But like I, that to me is like, if we want to continuing the trend of outrageous amounts of money, yeah, if Amazon spend. put that much like dedication into doing this outrageous practical title reveal that probably 50% of people would never know was practical, this is probably going to be a really intricate and like kind of incredibly made show. And that just kind of, that really blew my mind. And I think it's like a, a really smart kind of secondary story because the title, it hints at what we already knew, which was like, yes, we knew correct. that it was probably going to be about the making of the rings, like Sauron coming into power, taking from things like the Sumerian and all this kind of stuff. But like they made this secondary story where they were like, but also look at how much time we took making this title. Imagine how much time we're taking making every episode of this show. That's what they're telling us is craft. We are going to mm-hmm. care about the craft of this because I think, this, you know, obviously Lord of the Rings has like a century's worth of fans almost. Mm-hmm. You know, they're talking about the, the, the grandfather really in a lot of ways of fantasy as we know it with generations of fans. And, you know, the question that I think a lot of Lord of the Rings fans are asking each other is like, oh, my God, are you nervous about this? Like, are mm-hmm. they going to blow it? I think this release was a signal like, hey, we know it's a big deal. We're not going to blow it. <laughs> We're going to really give a shit. And I will, and the people, listen, the, the talent, the creative minds behind this, mm-hmm. you never know, but it's all people who know what they're doing, who, uh, who understand how to tell a story. So that's very exciting. Next up, Moon Knight. We got our first real trailer during the Rams Cardinals uh, wild card stomping out of the Cardinals by the Rams. Series premiere, March 30th, 2022, six episodes. Uh, Oscar Isaacs, of course, as Stephen Grant slash Mark Spector slash the Moon Knight. Ethan Hawke as single appearance character Arthur Harrow in the 1985 Volume 2 Moon Knight series. This, I am intrigued. Yes. I I am very intrigued. Rosie, you've written quite a bit about this on Nerdist and elsewhere. (laughs) Uh, Give us your thoughts. Okay, so the biggest, I think the biggest reveal there is... um, the Arthur Harrow thing. That was like a really big deal. But before we get into that, I also think something that will probably be a relief to a lot of fans is like the Stephen Grant persona and the funny kind yes. of Oliver accent. That is just a persona. And it se- <laughs> Oscar seems to be in on it. They did like a really funny, uh, Ethan Hawke and Oscar Isaac did like a reaction video for Disney. And as soon as Stephen started talking, Oscar was like, Please, sir, can I have some more? So I was like, okay, he knows. He knows he sounds like Oliver. So Stephen Grant, I think that it's very interesting that for as far as we know, this is not Stephen Grant billionaire playboy, which is what he is in the comics. Playboy, movie producer, like all these different kind of like big business personas. Yeah, this is Stephen Grant who works in what is seemingly an amalgamation of the National Gallery in London and the British Museum. Inside, they definitely shot in the British Museum. They have these really Mm -hmm. recognizable open plan gift stores, which is where Stephen Grant works. But when we see the outside, they show the National Gallery. British Museum has a very bad and well-recorded history of... um, 
stolen artifacts. So I think that by moving it away from there is like a very smart kind. And this way you can have Stephen working in this art gallery where there just happens to be an Egyptian right. touring gallery that from the trailer seems like it's going to wake him up. I I, uh, I agree with you. This is going to be, I think, in lieu of some kind of like, you know, mercenary mm-hmm. action scene like in the Sudan or something or or, or Egypt. I think you're right. This will be how he communicates and or is, is affected by Khonshu, if Khonshu yeah. is even real. I wanted to ask you, because like the way they the trailer is described, I wonder if Stephen Grant sharing the body with Mark, with mercenary Mark Spector, do you think it's there's going to be any kind of like interdimensional stuff in this? I did wonder that because the, the description is rather than it being kind of like multiple personas, they're like he is sharing yeah. the body with. The sharing the body was it, I kind of piqued my interest. Yeah, say. so it could be definitely some kind of you know, this is all very, uh, the Moon Knight stuff is all very mythical and cosmic. So there could be some right. kind of like a astral projection, like shared bodies. I also think if we go back to Arthur Harrow, right? So in the comics, if you haven't read it, which would not be surprising because he's in one issue. He is a, a scientist who has a facial paralysis and is in constant right. pain. And he's doing tests on pain theory. And yeah. he's using, because he's a villain, he's using like Nazi science to do his tests. He was like, oh man, nobody's ever... Why has nobody ever pushed this Nazi <laughs> research farther? I think I would. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I think this is a great idea. And he's testing on unwilling human participants. And that's kind of like his big arc. And he ends up escaping with the help of this awful, like, evil group that we don't really see again called Omenom. Don't know what that acronym sounds for, but it's funny to say. But I think what's interesting is in this trailer, we see Stephen Grant struggling with not knowing who he is and sharing a body. And we see Ethan Hawke's Arthur Harrow turn up and be very interested in him. And I do think that the Arthur Harrow, the biggest thing about him is he's a scientist. So there is potentially a chance that maybe Stephen or Mark was one of his test subjects. And that's how Mm, the bodies became kind of conjoined. That's how the spirits became conjoined or that maybe... Uh, you know, Arthur, one of the things I found really interesting is he's holding this alligator-headed cane. So, you know, in, right. and, Egyptian, and, 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 Egyptian and, like, gods. It, yes. And the, that's another really interesting thing about the official description is it says that Mark slash Stephen will get thrust into this ancient and contemporary battle between these Egyptian gods, which is not something I would necessarily say is like high on the usual descriptions of a Moon Knight comic. He's more like a right. super-powered vigilante who gets his stuff and the mytho- mythology is there. So there's a chance that, like, you know, is Ethan Hawke part of the cult of Sobek? Sobek's an alligator-headed god and he has a cult in the Black Panther world of Marvel. Yeah. So there's that kind of stuff. Or I think a lot of people think he's going to be Sun King, who is Ra, the, the god of the sun, who I think actually, like, consumed Sobek and they become like one god and that is a recurring Moon Knight villain. So I think there's kind of a lot of interesting options. But the thing that really I think is so key here is the line when Arthur Harrow, which is when most people realized he was Arthur Harrow because they put on the captions. He says, there's chaos in you, embrace the chaos. And embrace chaos is the Shumagorath slogan from the video games. It always comes back to Shumagorath. Always comes uh, back to Shumagorath. And, uh, and and I do think that the chaos magic aspect of this, because also um, in the, you know, King in Black recent Marvel series, right, Null revealed that 
Konshu, who Mark is like either his kind of human representation on Earth, gets his power from him. Maybe he's real, maybe he's not. Egyptian god is like an elder god in the Marvel universe, the same as Shumagorath. So I just think that the chaos aspect of this, I think that they're going to bring more chaos magic to it. And that's going to be a big part of phase four with Wanda, with Doctor Strange. Good call. Yeah. Good call. Uh, We should add that it was announced this week that Gaspard Uliel an actor who is cast in Moon Knight, will appear in the series, is probably recognizable to our audience from the Blue de Chanel parfum ads, uh, passed away at a ski accident in the Alps. So uh, that's extremely sad in regards to his, his family and loved ones. It was, man, what a tough announcement for this mm-hmm. week. It was really sad. Um, next up, Peacemaker. Okay, Peacemaker is ongoing. We're four episodes in at the time of this recording. We will do a more Peacemaker-centric episode in the future. But let's just talk about what we think about Peacemaker and, you know, what many are calling perhaps the best credit sequence in the history of television. (laughs) I will say that I never skip it. And every time the music hits, I'm like, this is happening And I'm going to sit here and enjoy this for the next 45 seconds or whatever it is. Yeah. Who doesn't love like a dance sequence to hair metal in a neon hued room? This is a very interesting show. Like it's kind of like the revenge of kick-ass in a way, like a return to the kick-ass tone of superhero story in which, you know, you've got this kind of misbegotten, ragtag group of wannabe heroes who are processing their own like personal trauma in ways that are often problematic, but they are, you know, uh, twirling towards the light, so to speak, in their own personal journeys. And they end up always doing good. But, you know, the the kind of ultra violence is played for comic effect. And there's a lot of comic, there's a lot of like stuff played for last year. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm enjoying the show, even though uh, I will say through four episodes, it kind of feels like nothing is really happening yet. It It's definitely a tone piece. Like, I feel yes. like this is really a uh, a kind of like funny, kind of like wacky, violent kind of tone piece. It doesn't seem like it has a, a massive vital. It's very much, I feel like, going to be contained within the world of Peacemaker. Which makes sense. Saul, our, our producer, is DMing us that uh, James Gunn uh, made Super in 2010 with Rain Wilson, yeah. which is, of course, is a similar uh, tone to Kick-Ass. Let's do a quick recap, like a super, super whirlwind recap. <laughs> uh, episode one uh, picks up after the events of the most recent Suicide Squad movie. Peacemaker is fine after being shot and having a building dropped on him. Don't worry about that. He uh, heals up, leaves the hospital goes back home, meets with his dad, Augie, uh, who is a real fucking asshole Mm -hmm. piece of shit, but really good at like building weapons and weaponry and equipment for his son. uh, Peacemaker also uh, uh, reunites with his uh, pet eagle, Eagly. We meet the rest of the team. We learn that Adebayo is Amanda Waller's daughter uh, and is the only one who kind of like knows what the mission, whatever the mission is, is. Uh, Peacemaker tries to hit on uh, one of the agents that is like managing him, Agent Harcourt. It, it turns out pretty bad that we get to see Agent Harcourt 
like absolutely rock a dude, like kick his <laughs> ass in unbelievable fashion. Yeah, it's like John Wick level action direction when she takes that guy down. It's it's really great. She's brilliant. Then Peacemaker uh, has a kind of sexual liaison with the woman who turns out to be infected with something that we later uh, discover is something called the butterfly, which is part of the, the ongoing mission. Uh, episode two, Harcourt and Adebayo attempt to extract Peacemaker from the crime scene that unfolded in the wake of his liaison with this butterfly-infected person who he turned into goo uh, with his helmet powers. Uh, Peacemaker later goes home feeling like his team hates him because he's an asshole. He has an emotional breakdown that's interrupted by uh, his best friend, Vigilante, who reminds me of Nick Weiger, uh, the comedian and improv uh, uh, person and podcaster Nick Weiger, a friend of mine, for some reason, just reminds me of Nick. Anyway, uh, to cheer him up, Vigilante takes a Peacemaker out to shoot a bunch of appliances in the forest. Adebayo bribes the couple who then say Augie held them hostage. Episode three, the team still won't explain to Peacemaker what the butterflies are, but he has to go and kill uh, a U.S. Senator, Royland Goff, and and his entire family, basically. Uh, he They watch the hit team, which is Peacemaker, uh, Harcourt, and Vigilante is hanging out there, too. They watch as the senator's family, like, drink with huge, like, long serpent tongues, confirming that they all are all, like, butterflies, whatever that means. Again, Peacemaker's like, I can't kill this entire family. So Vigilante's like, I got it. And, and headshots the entire family plus the kids, but misses the senator, and then uh, the senator's bodyguard sneaks up on them and there's a big fight. Goth captures Vigilante, tortures Vigilante in front of Peacemaker in order to get like Peacemaker to give up information. I don't know why anybody would think this is, would work other than it's really funny to watch him chop off Vigilante's toe as Peacemaker is like, I'll never talk, you <laughs> son of a bitch. Uh, and then we get the image of an alien butterfly emerging from Goth's head. And we learn the truth that Project Butterfly is about stopping possibly thousands because we get a map of where all these butterflies are across the world. Thousands of alien butterflies that are embedded inside people. And then episode four, we're not going to spoil because it just came out. What are your thoughts on this series thus far, Rosie? I have a complex relationship with this series. I think it's very well okay. made. I think the cast yeah. is really good. I think it's it's very fun and violent and weird. I think they're doing interesting stuff. I think Freddie Stromer, who plays Vigilante, is like unbelievable. He's like, so good. It's every so time he is on the screen, he's this kind of so more sociopathic Wade Wilson for Deadpool fans. Like he has this yeah. weird, but his snarky jokes do not hit. He like and it, and it makes it so good and weird. And I I think it's really interesting. Like in season, so in episode two, we see that uh, Peacemaker's dad, Augie. They, these Nazis call him the White Dragon. And there is this yeah. uh, Nazi supervillain in DC Comics called White Dragon, who isn't usually that character, but I think that's really interesting to explore. But the thing I, I have a slight, just a slight struggle with is like, I honestly think Suicide Squad is like one of the best superhero movies ever made. I, yeah. I think it's this really bleak, brilliant, funny, subversive, radical look at like colonialism and... Uh, the way that prisoners are seen as expendable and at different ideas of patriotism, which are really defined in the movie by uh, Rick Flagg. 
yeah. who is this idealistic patriot and and peacemaker who is this violent patriot. So as someone who's seen that movie more than once and who really feels like it was just so well done, I can't necessarily like correlate that. Like when Peacemaker was in this movie and he was uh, in the show and he was like, I can't kill these kids. I was like, really? Yeah, it's like, wait, I I'm like, I've, seen you, I've seen you yeah. kill like so many people. And like, there's, yeah. So that aspect of it for me is like, the way I see it, Chris, uh, our producer, he, he said he made this great point where he was like, Suicide Squad can like exist and be great. And this is like a, a, a cherry on the top. You know, this is like an extra thing. So for me, I, I love Suicide Squad. And that to me is like the peak of, of what Peacemaker can be because I don't think he necessarily needs like a redemption arc. But I do think the show is really interesting. And James Gunn is very good at doing weird alien cosmic stuff. Yeah. So I'm very excited to see where that goes. I wrote a piece for Polygon kind of guessing where it might go based on the third first three episodes. And while the butterflies are not, technically anything like directly from the comic there are some their mind control so it's like oh is it dr psycho is it mr mind you know because he's a worm as well so a caterpillar so that would make sense but i actually think from the end of episode three that i think the big review will be like insect queen who is like mm. this weird old character who was originally lana lang for like two versions but there's a third version where she's a alien who can possess people who wants to create a human hive on earth who are full of worker drones so it makes sense to me that she would like kill some people off using mind control to basically like wipe so that aspect of it i do i do find really interesting but the peacemaker i i know from suicide squad and what i felt like gun did such a good job representing it doesn't necessarily immediately correlate to this show which is a lot more fun and, and a lot more focused on him my only question with this show and i'm enjoying it thus far um, but I find myself wondering how it will connect to the wider DC universe, mm-hmm. both in movies and television. I think, like, if there's been, you know, if DC television has been great, yeah, like animated and live action, like that stuff is good. If there's a weakness, if you could call it that, is that all that stuff is really fractured. And other mm-hmm. than a few kind of like small crossovers that really don't affect the canon like at all they haven't done anything that is that hooks these properties or peacemaker or anything else like directly into other movies that are going obviously this is like a spin-off yeah suicide squad even then it's taking advantage of the fractured nature by kind of getting to reimagine i mean i think something that's really funny that you're kind of that you touch on here is like so marvel's doing this multiverse right but really the only reason that the cultural zeitgeist works and people know enough what the multiverse is is because of dc and the dc tv shows yes they really stole (laughs) dc's thunder in this regard yeah because like you said like there's all these different so something i find really interesting about peacemaker is like it feels very contained and i would love to see it connect to these other things but when when we think about the other shows that are coming out soon that are dc shows on hbo max specifically so the gcpd show and i think the penguin show they were talking about both of those are obviously not going to be connecting to to Peacemaker, you know? So I think one of the strengths that I think DC has for its films is letting directors do whatever they want and giving them this absolute, complete creative vision so you can have the Joker and Aquaman come out from the same studio, right? Now, I do think that I don't necessarily know if that has the same power when it's TV because TV can be this space to connect everything together. So I would really love to see what you're kind of saying. I would love for this to surprise us and for it to be 
more directly a connection to the other things in the DC world that we know. Yeah, like, w- will there be a mention? Obviously, there's a lot of roasting of Batman. Uh, <laughs> Correctly <laughs> so. And, and yes, absolutely accurate uh, roasting of Batman that goes up throughout, this, throughout the series. Uh, but are we going to get any mentions of, like, mm-hmm. you know, the events of Justice League or anything like that, like, that will let us know that people in this world are aware of the other things that are going on beyond just, like, you know, like Batman's such a like loser. Isn't Lex <laughs> Luthor like a what a dummy he is? Like stuff like that. Like, are we going to actually talk about other stuff? Like, you know, like hey, remember when? Uh, remember when oh Bane God, like, took everybody hostage? And wasn't that crazy? Like, is anything like that going to happen? Because that will obviously it's like a really simple thing mm-hmm. to do, and there's like complications with regards to how uh, stuff fits in the timeline, and and nerds love that stuff, and they. As soon as there's a mention of that, people will be trying to figure out like where this all fits in the thing. But I think that's all important. Mm-hmm. All this stuff matter, you know, like because fans want to feel like, oh, this stuff matters to like larger stories. So I, that's what I'm really interested in. I'm enjoying it. I'm 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 I'll, I'm looking forward to talking about it more in depth. Uh, up next, Hive Mind. Welcome to The Hive Mind, where we discuss a topic in depth with an expert guest today. We've gathered, like Thanos, two of the top 100 Jasons in media. Jason Manzukas, our great friend, joins us to continue our ongoing conversation on Book of Boba Fett. Jason, how are you? I am thrilled, Jason, to be here. It is, there is, uh, there is almost, ri- almost never in my life am I addressing another Jason. And so, I know, it's so our, rare. Uh, our friendship makes me so happy in this regard because it is, it's also so confusing when we're around others. I people. love that. I love that. That's, <laughs> the, that's the great part of it. it. Just before this, our engineer Vasilis said, Hey, Jason, uh, I need you to check your set. And we, and it was unclear which one, which one? was Both being of us discussed. Were like, <laughs> and that is, and that, I love that so much being around another Jason and just being like, well, which one? Get, you it, get grow, your facts you together. This. Did you grow up? Because here's the thing. I don't, yeah. there are no more Jasons. Like, it's I don't so think, true. I don't, I think Jason is an extinct name. Like, I don't think people our age, my age, your age yeah. are naming their kids Jason. I don't I think, think it exists true. as a popular name anymore. I think you're right. I think, too, I, I'm just going to just, uh, Come with a theory. I think two things affected this. One was the Jason and the Argonauts movies, right? Oh, the that's famous uh, the stop motion uh, movies that I think were popular and people love those. And then I think what poisoned it was Friday the Thirteenth. Jason, Holy I think it shit. came in and I didn't stopped even it. Think about that. That's like naming your kid Freddy Krueger. Yeah. And I think that put a. I think that put that a. That put stop the kibosh on our. Yeah. Our name. Wow. Wow, so like that the, the real death from the Friday the Thirteenth movies is That's the name right. Jason. Huh. That's right. All Everyone right. had uh, teenagers having sex, and the name Jason were uh, made extinct by the Friday the Thirteenth movies. That's um, okay. That's that's great. We, I'm glad we've settled at least that so far <laughs> on our book of Boba Fett dissection. Um, I got to see you semi in well in person recently at a live uh, showing of how did this get made? Live taping of of the podcast first of all thank you for inviting me it was really great you know like i've seen you on stage so many times as we've talked about so 
I'm a fan of improv. I'm a fan of comedy. I'm a fan of comedic stuff. I'm a New York native. I spent a lot of time there. I saw you many times at USB and in uh, at USB. various venues. U- Excuse me. USB. Oh, my God. I, I saw mean, you, right there. Right yeah. there. That's it. USB. I, I saw you many times at UCB and various other venues, and it was just great to see you on stage again. Really fun. What was it? What was it like? You know, How did you feel? It felt it was it was it was great. It was so exciting. You know, like, listen, I've been performing live two to five times a week for the last 22 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I moved to New York in 98 to start doing comedy and immediately started doing shows. And so to in the last couple of years to in the last, you know, whatever, 22 months, like shut that down completely. Yeah. And while we've been very lucky to be able to do like live stream shows or I still get to do like this and connect with you over Zoom and still have a fun, funny conversation about things we care about. And we can still do the podcast remotely, which has been fantastic. But the loss of performing live in front of an audience, touring with How Did This Get Made, that was that has been like psychologically a tremendous loss for me in the last, you know, two years during the pandemic of being at home alone not engaging and not performing live, not doing anything like that. So, so that show at Largo, which was like a really, we got, we squeaked it in there right before the Omicron variant kind of took over. That show was this incredible catharsis, this incredible, like, oh my God, thank God. Uh, It felt incredible both to be on stage doing the show. It felt like really like like it felt like sips of water from after wandering through the 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 dune sea uh um <laughs> with with no black melons to find in the sand you need that um, black melon that's what it it felt like a few sips from a black melon uh in, in the dune sea but um at the end of the day i was also very scary i was yeah, still I, I, I bet. So rattled and so nervous to be just around that many people. You know, it's interesting because the last improv show I saw before total lockdown was you in Gravid Water. Oh, yeah. At at UCB Franklin, which was a super fun show. And that was right as all this stuff was happening. So just a really weird bookend. It was great to see you again, Uh, you know. What a weird time we live in. What a it weird is what, time. It's, but, it, you know, to your point, there is really just something about getting to the energy of a live room. The and audience, too. The yeah, audience. Felt, felt electric. Yeah, it's and I, you know, having seen, I think this is like maybe the third, all Largo shows. This is like the third live thing I've seen since uh-huh. this kind of like this stage of the thing. And... Audiences are just so appreciative. Like the energy in the room is always, you know, everybody is feeling like, okay, this is risky and there's there's a certain level of things that we just have to accept now. But also like it's wonderful to be around people who like this thing that we're all experiencing. And so that was really great. I'm just so appreciative of that. To participate in that kind of that 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 experience that that, you know, usually is easy. You know, like, like I've, you know, I've been missing, I go to a lot of concerts. Uh, I've been missing going to see live shows and I can't wait to go to a show, you know, and, and, and sit in the audience and enjoy that, that, that moment, you know, like what I love about doing a show like that is, or when I like, you know, going to shows or doing that show at Largo, it really feels like a a special event, you know, like I get to 
I get to, you know, see Paul in June and talk about a funny movie. But the audience <laughs> being there, like we can do that on Zoom, but like the audience being there, it's like there's a fourth person there and the yeah. person is the audience and we're bouncing off of them and interacting with them. And that's the best. Yeah, it's uh, I really missed it. And it was great to see you. Let's talk about the book of Boba Fett. Yeah. Uh, going into the whiplash recap. We open on Boba's back to tank memories and a flashback to the events of the Mandalorian season one, chapter five. When, for those of you who don't recall, uh, a handcuffed Fennec Shand was shot in cold blood by the bounty hunter Toro Calican. Boo! And that episode ended with a mysterious figure walking towards Shan's wounded form, and we assumed from the events late in season two of The Mandalorian that that person was Boba Fett, who well, along with there Shan- was also, I remember, a lot of speculation at the time that it was Boba Fett because there were spurs. Like, yes. it, they had put, they had dropped in audio sound of spurs ka-chink, as his ka-chink, footsteps approached. Ka-chink. Famously, uh, Boba, who we know of from the uh, Star Wars holiday show, loves to ride giant beasts. He needs those spurs. Uh, and now we have confirmation that it is indeed was Boba Fett uh, through the course of this episode. Later in the flashback, we see Boba on Bantha back. And this is, let me just say, this is the best Star Wars Bantha content we've ever had. What oh, a yeah. time to be a fan of the Bantha. Listen, if you're out in these streets yes, and you're saying, you know what I need more from in my Star Wars? Banthas- I gotta have it. Banthas and Bactas, this show is for you. This show is wall-to-wall Banthas and Bactas. Lots of BB action. (laughs) Uh, We see uh, Boba ride on the Bantha back to Jabba's palace, and the fortress is surrounded by henchies. So much security that Boba's like, "Eh, I'm not going in there. Later, after dinner and some cuddle time with the Bantha again. This is like fantastic. Oh. We see the Bantha tongue. We get it's to see so, the Bantha eat. And last last week it was the Rancor. Like Boba yes. loves animals. <laughs> He's an animal lover. Who would have thought when we were kids, when we were yeah. kids and Boba Fett had, had, had like was such a mystery to us, was such a Absolutely. obsessive character, a character to obsess upon and try and figure out who would have thought that he loves animals animals <laughs> absolutely loves them and indeed might be discovering that on his own right now in front of our eyes you know clearly like he's a different person after being digested for a while uh in in the sarlacc stomach and i think he's just he needs that thing in his life that he loves loyalty obviously as we know and he just wants a bond with a with an animal it's beautiful the only the, it's seemingly the only animal that Boba is not interested in cuddling with is the Sarlacc. That's <laughs> it. Well, I mean, that was like against his will and consent is so important, obviously. So Boba, <laughs> uh, after uh, having a wonderful dinner and snack time with the Banta, he looks in the sky, sees these flash charges lighting up the sky, he rides over there. And there he finds our friend Fennec Shand seriously wounded and near death. Boba's like, I must save Fennec's life. He uh, rides with Fennec on Bantha back to the fringe of Mos Eisley, a place where body modifications are performed for the mostly younger citizens of Tatooine. This is like a young person's thing on Tatooine. Set up. I felt like they were using visual um, cues to tell you that this is like a tattoo parlor. This is a tattoo parlor. Parlor exactly. This is like getting your eyebrow pierced in the nineties. Yes. If uh, if you're on Tatooine at this time, 
all the kids are doing body modifications. Yes. Putting like cy- uh, putting cybernetic parts in their bodies. And not because, like Luke, they got their hand chopped off in a domestic dispute with your father. No. They're doing it just because it's like cool and fun. Yeah. They want to just like express just, just themselves. To be, just to that rebel. Way. Just yeah, as a way exactly. to rebel. Um, at the Body Mart Parlor, which is clerked by the musician Thundercat, who I love that the producers were just like, you look like you're in Star Wars, no yeah. changes. Like, you're just you. get in here. Get like, in you're here, the that's guy. It. You're the guy. That's, <laughs> that's it. Uh, Boba is like, hey, listen, uh, they're like, aren't you old to be in here? Which, calm down, Thundercat. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Is do you not like credits? Like, what is your problem? My also like like uh, Thundercat goes from like what to me appears to be doing kind of almost cosmetic yes. a- applications of cybernetics or whatever to basically rebuilding Fennec Shan's entire like abdomen and body. Like he he <laughs> yes. saves he's he's not just like a te- it would be like if you brought a dying person. To a tattoo artist and said, like, you need to tattoo a full sleeve on their arm and it needs to save their life. Or you need to tattoo like a phoenix rising on their chest and it needs to give them new lungs. Like two things, two things. I love that one Thundercat sees uh, Boba Fett, a stranger to him, come into his parlor carrying a near death woman. Yeah. And his first comment is, aren't you a little old to be in here? That's where his head is at. And secondly, I haven't been able to stop thinking about Thundercat previous to this incident. Just trying to convince these kids, hey, what if I replace your heart? Like, I've been really working on the medical angle of what we do. And I know, like, yes, you want, like, some new, you want, like, a hypervision eye or some kind of, like, really cool ear or maybe, like, a metal fin on your head. But let me just pitch you on this. What if I replaced your heart and lungs? Yeah. And left it open? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So people yeah. could see it. General Grievous style. Yes. What if we, what if we grievous you? What if we just <laughs> left shit open so people could see what's up? Can I grievous you? <laughs> That's no consent. charge. I'm That's just consent. trying stuff. I just what, can I get your consent to grievous you? Yes. Uh, so Boba's like, listen, I need you to save this woman's life. And by the way, here's a bag of credits. And Thundercat's like, why didn't you say so? And he just leaps to the job, replaces, as you noted, all her internal organs, but leaves it open just so people can really uh, look at the work and say, Whoa, and so that she, that? and so that she can. Yes. That's because that's the other thing. Like, I, I want to impress upon everybody. Like, <laughs> there is no back to tank. There's no back to patches. No, there's no medical. This is not a medical facility at all. But they do no. invasive medical procedures on Fennec right. Shand, who then they just release back into the Dune Sea. Like, they go right. back into the desert. And and his. Like the stuff he was using was basically like a few mirrors and like a and, a, and like a welding torch. <laughs> I hope hopefully they wiped her down with Bacta. I, I don't I know. assume. Yeah. Shand awakens in the desert and she's like, man, my stomach feels weird. <laughs> Boba is uh, hands her a, a black melon and says, you got to drink this. Like, you've been through a lot. You don't even know what's happened. It's like it's like Lupin handing Harry some chocolate after he sees the Dementor. He's like, exactly- what you're about to see is going to freak you out. You should drink yeah. a couple of drops of this first. 
Yeah, please, please imbibe of this. Uh, Boba knows who Fennec is, is well aware of her resume. So Shand is like, "Uh uh-oh, the the great and powerful Boba Fett is about to collect the bounty on me. And he's like, no, 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 no. I'm a different guy now. Uh, I'm loving him saying I am Boba Fett to people. That's right. I'm Boba Fett. I love it. He says it in a way... Bubba. It's like a Bubba almost. It, 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 the accent is not where I would have put it, but it's great. That is exactly the way I feel. You know, a lot of this stuff, it's like you, uh, you know, particularly with Star Wars and a character like Boba Fett where it's like you barely hear him speak. And all the content that in my mind about Boba Fett is like a total of seven minutes, but that I held in my mind for decades. It is really interesting to see other people say these words and say his name and stuff. It's been really fun. So Boba says, listen, I'm a different person now. I spent a lot of time with the Tuscans. It changed my life, honestly. Like it was a life changing experience. I need your help uh, recovering my ship, formerly called the Slave One. I'm not calling it that now. It's a different time. (laughs) We're not going to call it the Slave One anymore. And I'm not even going to reference that it used to be called Slave One. Right. We're not. We're going to. I'm just going to call it by the model and make of my ship. Uh, And P.S. It's at Jabba's Palace where Fortuna is currently ruling. Let me ask you a question, Jace. Yeah. Um, do you think that in the in last week's episode, when we saw that the Tuscan Raiders who had or the the yeah the Tuscan Raiders that had been that had taken Boba in, mm-hmm. um, and they were massacred by the yes. biker gang, uh, we we think they were. Do you think that all of them were massacred, or do you think Boba will be eventually reunited with some? Maybe they're being held hostage or something like, or are they all, are we meant to believe that I think the show so far has been a little unsuccessful in telling me information and communicating information in a way that I know exactly. I'm still not clear what's going on. Um, Do you think that chapter is done? Or no, are- I, it's a great question. I feel like there will be survivors. I think the kid will survive. I think the child. Because he in- burns the sticks. He burns the yeah. kid's stick. You know, which to me felt like the kid is in there. But I don't, maybe you're right. I feel like because we didn't see the kid explicitly, I feel like they will be reunited at okay, some point I in the future. So. And, yeah. and it also felt like, you know, a, a kind of weird double beat with Attack of the Clones and Anakin massacring oh, yeah. the Tuscans. So it felt like we're going to get a note. I, I feel like the producers will give us a note of hope there. That is just a guess. I hope so. Um, yeah, because that was frankly, the part of the show that I had been enjoying the most were those flashbacks to when he was taken in by the Tuscan Raiders and 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 the train heist and all of that. Those stories were, those episodes were my favorite so far. The last two episodes have not been as interesting to me. The introduction of the the mods, um, you know, like the, the mods, idea. The mods, the mods have a, a the mods and the, and the, like the Zoomer generation Tatooine kids, yes, uh, are divisive. Yeah, let's just say that. Well, the people, they are the people, mods. They're called the they mods the because mods. they're body yeah. modifications, but they're also the mods because it's a direct Quadrophenia reference. Yes, between even the, down to the scooters. The yeah, the scooters with the multiple, um, the colorful scooters with the multiple rearview mirrors is literally from the Who's Quadrophenia uh, movie, which is and the, it's the mods versus the rockers, and so the biker gang, the speeder gang, are dressed like rockers, and I'm like, why did they do? This is where this is where the show. <laughs> this was the first time 
any of these shows maybe go, uh oh, wait, what's this? I, I think what happened. Here's my guess on what happened here. Yeah. I think that the producers of this show who are fantastic and do a great job. Incredible. Incredible. I think they I think somewhere in the the broader like Lucasfilm uh Disney uh structure, someone had the note of, okay, love what you're doing. Um you know, Boba Fett is like 60 and Ming-Na Wen <laughs> is like 50. Maybe and then again, just a note, but maybe we need some younger people in yes. this. And I think that's what happened. And they were like, well, we do have a giant Wookiee. Okay. <laughs> hang on. <laughs> hang on. <laughs> that might not solve the maybe, but like maybe some somebody that would like younger viewers might identify with. Right. And they might and they might be like, ah, he, oh, this is great. Here's well, what I've about seen incestuous hut twins? <laughs> can that yeah, can I interest you in like <laughs> Two to three hundred year old incestuous <laughs> hut twins, you know, right? Like this is I'm spitballing, like riding a palaquin together and like uh, caressing each other's tails. Do, do you think? Do, do you think young people will will will, will, will really resonate? That will resonate with the youth of today, right? And then somebody was like, "Hold on, I, I hear incest is the number one porn search." So maybe that's going to be part of it. In only that's in only in, in only certain parts of the country, according to the maps I've seen. Um, <laughs> I think this is also how Thundercat got in. <laughs> so uh, Shand agrees to help uh, uh, Boba, and they go to uh, Jabba's old house, now inhabited by Bib Fortuna. Fennec uh, uses a small drone to reconnoiter Jabba's house, and the inside of it is like a uh, like a Splinter Cell video game with the guards like constantly cycling through their routes. They are, I, I'll tell you, this felt Bib, like a, a video game mission. Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. Jabba and then Bib, you guys are getting your money's worth with these henchies because they never stop working. Uh, so they reconnoiter the house. They get the whole layout. They f- And Shan's like, OK, we got to time our raid to le- the cycles of the guards. Later, uh, Boba, we get another Bantha moment where Boba's like, OK, I free you. Go, Bantha. Wander the desert once again. He has to throw like a piece of meat until the yeah, to get he he has like a he has like a go on get go on get, get out of here get. you like when when like like the kids trying to get rid of his dog or whatever he's like get out of here I never liked you he has like a heartwarming moment where he's trying to get rid of his bantha I, was like, this I don't is want wild. you around okay you want first of all I walk faster than you do you get it when do you I need to get someone when I need to get somewhere fast I have to get off and run. Yes. You are a hindrance. Come on. Give me a blurg. Give me a blurg. Please. So he tells, uh, Boba then tells Shan that uh, I need to regain, I need to get my armor back so people fear me again. I'm going to take down Bib Fortuna. I'm going to take over. And that is my plan. And you're going to help me with this because, listen, my time with the Tuscans, again, it really altered the arc of my life. And it showed me that uh, you can't. You can't do anything alone. Here's, I my, need a here's my problem and with I'd this like you to a be little part bit. Of it. Yeah, Tell which me. I liked. I liked this part. This this scene alone is, I'm like, okay, cool. But you know what? That's the show I'm currently watching. Like, I'm already watching, guy, I'm already watching your show. I know that you got her out and got her fixed. I know you got the ship and I've already seen you get the armor. You don't need to tell me all this in your show. I watched the other show. 
So this this episode felt a little redundant to me. Or, or infer- was, what was being communicated was be- redundant, you know? Some double beats definitely happening at this point in time in the Boba Fett show. <laughs> um, so they sneak in. Shand brutally slits the throat of uh, General Choppus, who, which is my name for the household cooking droid who has six arms, much like General oh, yeah. Grievous. Great. And all General <laughs> Choppus wants to do is, like, prepare meals. And I thought this was, like, a... This was like shockingly brutal, but that's fine. That tiny rat catcher droid arrives, nearly loved. blows everyone's cover. I absolutely love this droid. Loved, loved the droid work here, and I love, and I, you know, and I also love getting to see because Fennec Shand, uh, Ming Na Wen is doing amazing work on this show. I want to say, and I think that sh- that character is such a badass. And and I love that character, and I loved that character when we are first introduced to her in. Uh, in late earlier in the Bad Batch, yes, when she goes head to head with uh, our guy Cad Bane, um, love Cad Bane, the best. Um, and so we've seen her be so such a like incredibly efficient assassin and such a badass. I'm I was I like that this scene this action scene existed because I feel like she's not gotten a chance to like work it out over the course of this series, you know? She's doing a lot of, what do you want me to do, boss? You want me to follow him, boss? And I'm like, okay, but, like, also, she is a badass. Let's see this happen. I'm glad that she did get to cut loose. Again, it was brutal, particularly when contrasted immediately with the very, very cute rat catcher droid. (laughs) Just to remind you, hey, uh, when Fennec cut the throat of the cook... That was a real thinking, uh, conscious organism that, like, hated that that was happening. <laughs> like, really didn't want it to occur. But it did. Um, so Boba and Shand, of course, there are complications, but they do steal the uh, the ship formerly known as Slave One. And I promise the last time I'm going to reference that it was at one point in time called Slave One. Shand's life debt paid. Boba's like, listen. Wherever you want to go, I'm good. I'll drop you off. Uh, but, you know, but Shanda's like, you know what? We're, we're getting to work stuff out. There's some action going on. I like this. I'm going to stick with it. Later, Boba, now in the ship with Shand at his side, they just come, do a massacre on the <laughs> Nikto Sandriders. Literally just massacre the entire gang. So, like, now <laughs> are those guys gone? Like, I was, I, that, this is what I keep being like. Wait, is that the end of that storyline? It can't be, but uh, it's not being, that's not being communicated well enough to me. Cause I'm like, wait, did, was that them? That was the, did he just get them all and that's it? I agree with you. It feels like a larger showdown yeah. kind of has to happen, right? I think so. That would, it just is, it has to feel more satisfying in that way. Or it needs to be revealed that it wasn't the Nikto bike biker gang they were framed by the pikes or somebody else exactly and that boba realizes he did that in in, in, as a mistake you know john favreau if you're listening here's a note like just give me a scene where boba goes back to talk to the pikes and the pike uh ambassador slash gang captain says you got them all wow you got (laughs) you got them okay so then boba's like i need my armor last time i let me think where i see it uh last time i saw it (laughs) For sure, was I was be, I was being digested uh, for potentially ten thousand years in, in the gut of the of the sarlacc. Let's after a after a temporarily blind man accidentally knocked me into the sarlacc pit unceremoniously. P.S. I'm one of the greatest, if not the greatest, bounty hunter in the galaxy. But 
you know, everybody fucks up a little bit I sometimes. Got, I got jostled. <laughs> there was a lot, like, Fennec, there was so much going on when that happened. Let me just straight. It wasn't like uh, that's it's what me I want and the that blind fireside. guy, and that's it. That yeah, fireside like, seemed to be like Fennec being like, wait, so wait, tell me again, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let me just stress you. It wasn't just me and him, and he's blind, and, yeah. him and like and he took me out. There was other stuff going on. I mean, on. the whole pleasure barge is going down, and you yeah, don't yeah, understand. It's going but... down. You can hear the screams. Like uh, the, the, <laughs> the Jedi are back. Wait, what is this? So, so the uh, last words you heard were Boba Fett. Where's Boba Fett? And then nothing else. Oh, okay. So Boba and Shand go to the Sarlacc. They're like a dental procedure peering deep into the mouth of the sarlacc. They, they are pointed straight down the, straight into the gullet of the sarlacc <laughs> with, a, with a flashlight, with like a, with a powerful <laughs> flashlight looking for Boba's armor. And this is again, and again, I really want to stress, like, I'm loving these shows. I'm loving that we're getting more of these worlds. I'm loving, frankly, that we're getting more of Boba Fett. But my guy, I saw where this, the Jawas took your armor. We, the audience, know know it's not in there. So this is a wasted space. This is wasted time. The Sarlacc grabs the ship because the Sarlacc does that. That's how it eats. It grabs stuff that's near its mouth. You should have known that by now, Boba. And uh, Shan manages to get them out of it by dropping a depth charge into the into the Sarlacc. The Sarlacc is dead. Uh, Boba then <laughs> dives in to the Sarlacc corpse to like look around. Uh, doesn't find the armor. Finds a lot of trash. And of course, as you noted, we know where the, we know where the armor yeah. is. The Jawas have it. Okay, yeah, exactly. Uh, Boba then talks with Shand about, hey, crazy blue sky pitch here. Okay, <laughs> what if? I and you, we start our own organized crime syndicate. The bosses are fucking dumb. Jabba got taken out by, again, by like three people, like in the, what in we the need center is of a his freelancers power. union. We yes. need a freelancers union. Let's cut out the top and use our expertise and profit from it. And so he offers Shand a, a job as essentially his partner in crime, a cut of the profits and his eternal loyalty. Uh, and then in quick flashback scenes, we see Boba murdering Bib Fortuna. <laughs> <laughs> Bib, who's like initially is like Bulba, hello, and, and then he's just like dead. zero, no, no discussion, no nothing, nothing, <laughs> just like bye, goodbye. Like this is all. I just, here's the thing: I don't understand. Even when Boba is trying to explain it, I'm still not sure what his actual plan is writ large. You know, like well, I you know he's developing it as we go. It's very improvisational. It's very, very much so. But I gotta say, I'm impressed with how far he's gotten thus far with basically nothing further than well, you know, I, don't know, I killed Bib Fortuna, and everybody's like, "That's great, you're the guy now." It's interesting. Favreau comes out of the improv scene of Chicago, that's in right. the, and that's why people like Dave Pasquazi or Amy Sedaris yes. show up in yes. a lot of his shows because that's his generation of Chicago. In Improvisers, And so maybe he's casting Boba as like an improvisational crime lord. You know, he's really yes-anding his way into this. Uh, Fennec, can I get a word? Can I just Anybody any word? Anybody else here, can I get a word? Get uh, a- <laughs> and that's what, and that's, you know. <laughs> can I get an emotion, please? Can I just get a, a an emotion and, okay, great. <laughs> so uh, Boba 
then emerges from the back to tank. This was all flashback back to tank stuff. Shan says, hey, uh, the major domo who we are uh, theoretically torturing in order to get information about the mayor has nothing to say about the mayor. And this Uh, is master improviser Dave Pesquese, who is absolutely (laughs) killing it on this show. So good. I just love the kind of like oily, grimy kind of demeanor of this person whose job is to basically shine you on at every turn and keep you away from the mayor who is probably like in his or her or their office, like, you know, watching Pornhub or something. (laughs) But uh, but the major domo is like a very important meeting now. Uh, It can't be disturbed. Sorry. (laughs) So Boba puts on his armor and they need to find out more stuff about the mayor. So he and again, this is one of those things where why are they going to the cantina? But unclear. I I pieced it together, but it's fine. Boba and Shant head down to Garza uh, Flip's cantina. Guess who's already there? Chris Anton. Black Chris Anton is there stewing, angry, knuckle dusters, sparking, watching a group of rowdy Trandoshans. Now, if you for folks not deep into the granular content of Star Wars, Trandoshans are, are known for capturing and enslaving Wookiees. They so, are like, like you know, they are, Wook, for, to Wookiees, Trandoshans are like their natural enemy. Like they are. Doesn't they, like them. There is bad them. blood there. There is bad blood. So Chris is like hanging out and over there, you know, like right across the room is like a group of Trandoshans and they're going fucking nuts. They're spraying cash around. They're winning at the tables and Chris hates this. So he walks over and he just opens like a galaxy size can of whoop ass on them, is murdering them willy nilly. The last survivor is there. Uh, Black Chris lifts this Trandoshan in the air and then Garza steps forward and is like, oh, whoa, 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 hold on. <laughs> this is bad for business, but I get it. You're a legend. I hear you. You're, You're a legend. Yeah. Listen, nobody uh, dominated the fighting pits like you. Everybody knows what a badass you are. You, you know, like you're a, a Wookiee just to start with. So people are scared of you. But then you add the, the fighting pit stuff into it and everybody knows how tough you are. You don't need to do this. And I might add, let me just, you know, gently raise your bar tab, which is significant. What do you say? We just cancel that out and you let this trend ocean. You got the other three. Let this guy go. And we'll just call it all even. And then Black Chrysanthemum tears the Trandoshan's arm off, <laughs> which, uh, which a is a great callback to a new I love, hope. Exactly. I loved this as uh, as just a classic Wookiee move. <laughs> like, uh, just ripping a dude's arm off. Here we go. <laughs> and then uh, pays his tab because, listen, no yeah. one is going to say that Black Chrysanthemum doesn't pay his debts yes. when necessary. Okay. I, I was going to char- pay that. A character that our our text chain exploded upon his <laughs> yes. introduction because, like, I, I could not be more excited when when Black Chris Anton came so on good. screen with the so the Hut Twins, whatever, two episodes ago. I flipped out in my living room. I flipped out. I was so excited. I was mildly depressed the previous episode when it seemed like Black was out of it. Like, yeah. when it's like Chris Anton was, they let him go. And they were just going to be, gonna be that. It. Yeah. So delighted that uh, Boba and Chris Anton have hooked up once again. Yes. Out on the street after ripping the Trandoshan's arm off, Boba uh, offers Black Chris Anton a job. 
He agrees. Later, back at the palace, Shanda and Boba, uh, along with Black Chrysanthemum, are hosting the assorted gang captains. And once again, uh, Boba's like, can I get a word? What if the <laughs> word is alliance, folks? What about that? What if the word is mutual benefit? That's two words or a compound word. You can put a little, you know, like a little dash in between them. But like, what if it's that? Shand offers the gangs. Listen, she knows what they want. They want wealth. But serve Boba, you get rich. Pretty good deal, I think. Boba says, listen, your territory, that's yours. Whatever you want to do there, that's none of my business. But just do me a favor. Either two choices. Help me. Taking on the Pikes, a a major crime syndicate known throughout the galaxy, very, very powerful. Or if you can't go that far, just like don't betray me. Yeah. (laughs) What an ass. I love the ass. Don't work with them. Don't work with them to destroy me. If you're not going to help me, remain neutral. Please. Just do that. And the gangs... You know, they kind of they kind of mull it over, but then they all agree. And then Boba tells Shand uh, later, OK, we've got the gangs out of the way. We've got their acquiescence. It's time for war. What do we do? And Fennec says, well, we need some muscle. We need some henchies. And just as I'm about to think, oh, does this mean Cad Bane? Who does this mean? Oh. What could this possibly mean? I know. The Mandalorian theme. I was like, whoa. Whoa. <laughs> I was like, Mando is going to show up in this show. Are you kidding me? So that was very exciting. Excite, very excited that that happens. Listen, uh, can we get is uh, can we get Grogu back in the mix or no? Probably not. But listen, I'm excited anyway. My guess um, is it's going to be a post end of season two. Mando has lost Grogu, not lost, but has let Grogu go off with Luke. This will be pre whatever happens in Mando season three. In some in that timeline, right? Yes. Um, let me ask you this: Like, do you... maybe does Bo Katan and her crew of Mandalorians <laughs> join? Here is a weird window into me and my emotional state. Right. Even thinking about could Bo Katan show up here? Like, I get a weirdly emotional. Oh, uh, yeah. you, you know, like this is comfort food for me. Star I just Wars. rewatched all of Mandalorian leading into the Boba Fett show. And when Bo-Katan arrives, I yes. sobbed. When when they said when Bo-Katan says there and there you will find Ahsoka Tano, oh, I was sobbed brutal. again. Yes, it, crazy. I'm very emotional. But uh, yeah, yeah, no, these characters are like so incredibly important to me. You know, I've spent a lot of time with them, as have you. And I and you know, as we were talking about at the top of this segment. You know, shared stories are just so important right now. This is like how I feel like I connect with people. I connect with you. I connect with my other friends. We talk about this. Hey, did you see what happened in Boba Fett? Like, are you watching? I'm I'm rewatching the Clone Wars. I'm rewatching yeah. Mandalorian season two. And so, even the idea that Bo Katan could show up—it's so stupid. But I really want it to happen. Oh, like from an emotional absolutely. level, I. Really wanted to happen. I want that. I want that conversation. I want there to be a, a Bo-Katan, Din Djarin, Boba Fett conversation. Like, I want to hear all that. I, Because I, I'm I'm with you also. Like, in, in, there's a way in which, oh, boy, I would love it if Cad Bane yeah. showed up. Or I would love it if some of the other iconic bounty hunter slash muscle types uh, uh, that are still out there that we know would show up. But I can see a very clear path to it being... A post 
season two Mandalorian, Din Djarin, Bo-Katan and her compatriots in that cell of Mandalorians. You, you know, Din Djarin, does he have the Darksaber? Here's my pitch for what we're talking about. Basically all of Book of Boba Fett has been about this former loner who, you know, even in his relationship with his father slash clone, you know, it wasn't – there was a lot of abandonment issues. Boba's always been taking orders, do, you know, on his own. He learned the value of alliances, of having a tribe from the Tuscans, and he's putting that into action now – he wears Mandalorian armor, but he doesn't really know Mandalorian culture, right? No, no, not at all. Here is a widening of the tribe, the actual Mandalorians, the, re- the real Mandalorians who have been living and brought up within that culture, bringing Boba in and teaching him about that heritage. I think it would be of a piece with the theme of this show thus far. Oh, yeah. And be really cool. And also, I really want it. I also because I I also kind of want it too because there's a way in which there's still a dissonance between Bo-Katan's Mandalorian right. Mandalore and Din Djarin's Mandalore, yes. which is you know what I think we're meant to understand is Din Djarin is has been raised within like an offshoot of Death Watch, you right. know, and if so, he really has so little understanding of Mandalorian history and what the War for Mandalore was and. All of like the Duchess Satine, all of the storyline yeah. that we understand from Clone Wars and so forth, you know, all of that stuff. If Din Djarin doesn't know any of that, and and there's a way in which we can get understanding and include Boba Fett, yes. like there's something really compelling there that could be an engine or m- provide momentum into season three of Mandalorian, which could. I be really cool. love the idea of Bo Katan like sitting Din Djarin and Boba down and just being like, okay. Jin, I know you've been living in this weird <laughs> underground existence, like fighting for your life in this very small cell of Mandalorian culture. But I'm going to tell you the history of our people yeah. in recent years. Here's what happened. That would be amazing. And yeah. I hope we get something like that. Oh, I do too. Jason, anything else? Uh, it's first of all, fantastic to spend this time with you. Fantastic oh my God. to see you. Um Anything else to plug other than the recent announcement that you're Tommy Lee's penis in the upcoming <laughs> Tommy and Pam Hulu series? I am not. I'm not his penis. I am the voice of his penis. Ah. I am. I am the voice of Tommy Lee's penis in uh, in an, an episode of that series, uh, which is, I think is going to be very funny. It, well, you know, we talked about it earlier. The How Did This Get Made podcast, you know? It's wonderful, um, a wonderful it's podcast. myself, uh, Paul Shear, June Diane Raphael. We talk about bad movies. Um, you know, we've got, we've been doing it now for uh, 11 years or something it's crazy, crazy it's like wild. that. It's truly wild. And then, you know, uh, listen, uh, you know, do, talking about this with you, I'm I'm so enjoying this show. And Thank so you much so much. So it's really nice for you to say. That, like, I really am, like... I'm I'm diving into stuff that you're talking about that I'm not checking out or like the comics episode like like if you're listen if you're cherry picking episodes of this show and you're like I'm not a big comics person I don't need to listen to the comics episode listen to the comics episode and buy those books like I've been reading stuff you guys have been talking about it's I'm really enjoying the I'm really enjoying listening and learning about stuff that I do, that I'm not cuz a lot of times you're talking about stuff that I am 
also passionate about, mm-hmm. but sometimes not, you know? And sometimes I'm like, and I like the the part where it's like somebody's trying to convince you to watch a thing that you don't watch yet. And there have been a couple, there's been one of those that I was like, maybe I need, what was it, Attack on Titan? Attack I was like, on maybe, Titan, I don't. <laughs> maybe I need to watch Attack on Titan? This is a very compelling case. I've, I've got it in my, I've got it in my queue up next. Where are you? Are where are you on Arcane? Oh, I finished Arcane. I loved it. You did. Okay, I'm midway through it, and I'm I, it, it, I'm enjoying it, but it also feels so much like a video game to me that it's weird. See, now here's the thing: I am not a League of Legends person. I've no I'm not. Idea I'm about not a video lore. game person. Yeah, no idea about the lore. I, you know, we talked about this on the show. It was big. I, I was just like knocked out by the visual style. I get what you're saying about the video game stuff, but it didn't. I guess because I know kind of how you play League of Legends, but the fact that there's no kind of like one-to-one, oh, that's like a game mechanic. That's how that is. That that I don't perceive it that way, but I understand what you're saying. I'll just say that I loved some of the twists in it were and have been really really great i love okay. the show I, it yeah. was one of the great surprise watches of you know recent weeks i've enjoyed Ooh, it quite great a bit. okay good because i'm like i'm midway through it so i'm and i'm enjoying it i just i think i just got to commit and 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 go the, blast my way through the rest uh anything else anything else to, to say anything else that you want to recommend to people on our way um, out the door Buddy, uh, I don't know what else am I. What else am I liking? There, I mean, Station Eleven, fantastic. I'm trying to think of like things that people might not be checking out that I think are great. Oh, sure. There have been things that I feel like that, you know. There's a new season of Letterkenny that's up, uh, which is a Canadian sitcom that I'm obsessed with that I love. Fantastic show and weird. You know, much like Shit's Creek. You may have heard the word Leonard Kenny, but a lot of times that, that uh, for some reason, like stuff doesn't pierce the Canada-U.S. border in like, yes. the same way. Show's been going on for a while. If you can check it out, please check it out. Very funny. There's 10 seasons of it. Another show on HBO Max that I think is incredible is called Southside. If you're looking for like, because I've been trying, I, I want comedy. I want yeah, funny, hard, funny things. And Letter Kenny scratches that itch. The show uh, called Southside uh, on HBO Max is incredible. Uh, it's similar to Letter Kenny in the sense that it's about a whole different cast of characters in the South Side of Chicago and like following them all through like their uh, exploits. And they don't all necessarily, you know, coalesce into one long storyline. So it's really fun and really very funny, hard, funny show. Have you seen any of Aquaman King of Atlantis? No. Dude, do yourself a favor. Check out Aquaman, King of Atlantis. There's three 45-minute episodes up, and it's fucking funny. Uh, it's really funny. And then Peacemaker is a, is really fucking good. Peacemaker is very funny. Peacemaker is basically a sitcom. Like, you know, we were t- I was talking about it with Rosie earlier. In terms of, like, overarching plot, it's kind of like a lot of nothing happens, but there's the I'm having a blast. A1. A1 yeah. plus jokes. Agree. Hard agree. Like, I don't care where this story is going. I'm not invested in the butterflies. I'm not like, I'm not like, what, what do you think this means? Or I'm just like having a blast. It's they're doing a great job just kind of blowing it out. And I'm really enjoying it. Uh, you can see John Cena's uh, the butt cheeks, raw butt cheeks from the side. So if that interests you, uh, it th- th- that happens. In yeah, Peacemaker. lots of butt. It's an R rated. Lots of butt cheeks. Lots of butt cheeks. And again, Probably the greatest title sequence in oh, recent yes. memory. Without a doubt. And like one of the only ones I never skip. Ever. Never. Jason, this has been fantastic. Jason, this Jason, has been fantastic. 
Jason, I've loved seeing you. Uh, <laughs> please come on again. I would love to. I would lo- listen. Nothing makes me happier than talking about Star Wars with you. We didn't. Ta- oh, you know what we didn't talk about was Harry Potter. Um, oh my god! Reunion special. We texted about it a lot because we both cried quite a bit. Um, yes, along with you, Mary I and Rubin. Mal have been texting about it. I mean, it was a lot more managed than I was expecting. Yes. to say this. Like I thought it was going to be a little more roundtable-y, but you spend so much time with these characters, and then it's clear that. The actors also oh, yeah. have this relationship that is so intimate with each other, with the characters, with the story writ large. And it just it, was, it left me it left me in tears. And I'm like, listen, I'm like 49 years old. Yeah. Like my and my relationship to these stories is like I've been, you know, re-listening to the audiobooks of the of the Harry Potter books recently because they're like part of my like holiday kind of like around the holidays I always fall back into Harry Potter I always watch the movies and listen to the books and I was I've been listening to old binge mode Harry Potter episodes because they're they're a great kind of uh compliment to uh processing those stories again and so you know like there's something about like being back in that world yeah. even though the the films aren't my number one version of those stories it nonetheless was so great to listen to them talk about them like listen to them talk especially listening to people talk about Richard Harris or Alan yeah. Rickman and the people that uh, the, that have died uh, since and working. That young generation, I loved hearing the young generation talk about the fact that they were working with, like, these masters, you know? And, get, and, and getting an appreciation for that. Yes. Like, as they were going. Yeah. To your point, like, Robbie Coltrane, when he says he's talking about that his kids and his grandchildren and, the, the, you know, their kids will— yeah. You know, he won't be around, but they're going to discover this story and Hagrid will still be around that. Yeah. When he says like nobody, nobody will after a certain time, nobody will remember Robbie Coltrane, but they'll remember Hagrid. That reduced me to a heat. Yeah. Brutal. Incredible. Incredible. I really I loved it. I thought it was really great. And I also loved the nerd festival that was the quiz show, the Hogwarts that- quiz show that ha- that Helen Marin hosted that I watched every episode of and cried during that as well because of all the adorable nerds who were so good at answering the questions. I was like, this is incredible. Uh, it really felt of a piece with my life, too, because every day my girlfriend and I play Harry Potter trivia on oh, wow. the Alexa. And so the fact that this show Funny. came around, it was like, oh my gosh, I've been waiting for this. It's really like kind of unfair, too, because like it feels like every Harry Potter fan is like ready for Harry Potter trivia in a way oh, that is big unique. Time. Yeah, that was super fun. This was super fun as well, Jason. I enjoyed this. Thank you for having me on, Jason. What a delight. It is a it is a treat to see you. Next time I hope we can do it in person. Yeah, that'd be great. Up next, the airlock. Folks, we're stepping out of the airlock into the wilderness of a beautiful British Columbia where literally no one lives in anywhere near <laughs> where any of the stuff is happening. We're here to talk about the Showtime series Yellow Jackets, which is exploding into everyone's consciousness right now, which aired its season finale earlier this week. Rosie, this was like such a fun show. I'm so excited to talk about it. Let's quickly uh, recap the premise. Um, takes place in two timelines, right? So back in 1996, a, a, a girls' soccer team, high school soccer team, the Yellow Jackets, their plane crashed on the way to nationals in Canada. 
you know, in the forests of Canada. And events took place there that are both um, that are both mysterious. Not a lot of basically anybody that wasn't there does not really know what happened there. Uh, and the girls in the present day timeline of 2021 refuse to talk about it. There is a kind of code of silence where they uh, they are keeping some kind of secret. They were there for 19 months and we follow the events uh, both as they happen back in the past, in 1996, in the forest, and in 2021, as the now adult women with with different things going on in their lives, struggle to manage the effects of keeping this crazy, crazy secret. It's a really fun setup in which you get to have teenage versions and adult versions of the characters. So you have uh, Melanie Linsky. Um, who plays adult Shauna and Sophie Nelise, who plays teen Shauna, uh, Tawny Cypress as adult Taisa, and Jasmine Savoy Brown as uh, teen Taisa, Juliette Lewis and Sophie Thatcher uh, as adult and teenage Natalie, and then Christina Ricci and Samantha Hanratty as adult and teenage Misty, the great and wonderful Misty. Let's talk about the show that has been so fun. It is a show that made me feel the kind of Game of Thrones feelings mm-hmm. of, I have no idea what could happen in this episode. It had that kind of like Homeland Heroes kind of pace where, man, they are just like going for it in this season. Clearly like this, a feel of like, hey, if we don't get a season two, we're going to make them remember us in season <laughs> one. Uh, what are your thoughts on Yellow Jackets? I loved it. I just thought it was so great. And it's really funny you brought up Game of Thrones because I was talking to Saul yesterday and I said, like, there's even though it's nothing like Game of Thrones content-wise, right, it has that same feeling of a, a network cable, you know, broadcast kind of TV where the ends of these episodes have these cliffhangers where you just have to watch. It is not binge TV. It is not, it's like you could binge it and you can now on Showtime because the whole first season's out. But it has this, this energy to it, that kind of like, yeah. uh, you know what I really thought about was, you know, the episode of Game of Thrones where Jamie Lannister's hand gets cut off and yeah, it ends, well, yes. sorry, spoiler alert, guys. Um, yeah, but yeah. It, and it ends <laughs> with just this black, screen and no music in the credits most episodes of that's every episode yellow jackets <laughs> ended with something like that where i was just like, like oh, oh my, god, my god i think it's this really interesting thing where there has been other shows so like last year there was this really great show on uh prime video called the wilds which was female lord of the flies right and it was much more focused it, it had a little bit of a genre twist and it's really good but it's much more focused on the flashback aspects of like the big question there's like is the horror of being a teenage girl in society worse than being on the island actually yes so the island's not that bad what i think is really incredible about yellow jackets is it's it is a horror show There is horrible things. There is scary things, but it has this huge crossover of non-horror fans. There's something about the storytelling and the aspect of teenage girlhood and this and 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 the truth behind the idea of, you know, oh, teenage girls, they're so, they're so young, they're so, you know, naive, they're so weak. And and then this is just a real show that actually they're brutal and violent. And and there's this collaborative aspect to the way they approach the island that fits into that idea of like 
how it might be different for different genders to be on the island. But the collaboration is not a, a peaceful, calm, sweet one. It's a violent, brutal, feral one. And I think that's really speaking to people. You're right about that. I think the generational aspect too, the fact mm-hmm. that we are exploring the 90s in yes. a way that I think is like really unique, you know, like exploring the kind of like countercultural like upheavals of the 90s and gender politics mm-hmm. in a way that uh, that has 2021, 2022, like as a frame. And I think to your point, these kind of like conflicts seemed, you know, maybe at the time as kind of, you know, heated, but not, it was hard to like keep track of like the actual skin in the game. Whereas through the, through the lens of this show, you really realize like how important a lot of those conflicts are and how they influence these characters as they move through their life. I also think to your point about like the, I don't know what's going to happen next. It reminded me of like, I had this conversation with David Escoyer, showrunner of foundation, screenwriter of many comic book stuff where he was saying like one of the ways he approaches he approached foundation and, the, and doing story for television was they'd have their outline and then they just like take some time to go okay whether or not we can make it work what's the craziest thing that could happen now that we could <laughs> like you know just like anything blue sky like aliens like arrive like what is the craziest of like image that we could come up with and how would we connect that to the story? And a lot of this feels like that, like, mm-hmm. like there are so many like last five minutes of the episode, like there's an image of a woman with no eyes, like all of a sudden yeah. there's just flashes and I'm just like, oh shit, what is this? Or when we see Taisa, like, you know, there is uh, Lottie uh, has an image that initially we're not sure if it's real. This is back in the woods where she uh, is sleepwalking maybe or having a vision maybe as her kind of like mental health slowly dissolves and she sees Taisa like eating dirt. And we're not clear if that's real or if that's a hallucination or what. And then later on in the series, we see adult Taisa eating dirt and it was just like so shocking where you're just like, wait, (laughs) what's happening? But it really existed in this kind of like liminal space where it's unclear how much of it was like, real and how much could possibly be supernatural Mm -hmm. and it just hit the finale had that moment too where it was like you know we were seeing this symbol that was carved into trees in the woods back when they were you know trapped in the woods and then we it, it was seen other places and the characters have only kind of like begun to remark on this symbol and wonder what it means and then the finale you get this like crazy moment where kidnappers arrive the spoiler again like if you have not watched the finale of yellow jacks please go watch it it's pretty great really fun show where kidnappers arrive in this very lostish moment and they have the sim they have the mm-hmm. symbols on pendants and uh they kidnap characters and you're just like wait holy sh-. like they kidnap natalie and we're just like holy yeah. shit what the hell is happening yeah, and you get that with like the dueling moment of seeing like Thaisa, who is in her adult life, a, uh, I think she's like a senator and she's the underdog and she's had all this terrible stuff going on. So it seems like she's not going to get the role of state senator, which would make her, I think it would be like New Jersey's yeah. first black state senator yes. or something, or first black woman state senator. And, and, the thing that's really interesting about the contemporary nowadays part of Yellow Jackets is obviously everyone in America yeah. is obsessed with them because this is a thing that happened. It's a right. true crime. There are podcasts. There are there's content. Exactly. What happened there's People to the magazines. Jackets? 
So Thaisa winning this seems very out of the blue, especially because she's having smear campaigns thrown against her. So you see them say that she won. And then you see her wife at the same time going underneath their house and finding a blood altar with the same symbol of the kidnappers. And then you see Thaisa's face smile. And the funniest thing about it is what they used, my girlfriend they couldn't do a watch really, it. really she good job here. She using... covered her eyes and I had to describe to <laughs> yeah. her what was going on. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrifying. And like, what I love that they do really well in this show that I think is another big, big factor of its success and, and how well they use the dueling timelines is like, they set you up to be surprised in the 90s by establishing character beats and things about the characters. Like Thaisa is the cynic. Ty does not believe. She is a skeptic. And it all comes back to this, the, the, the guy with the no eyes who she saw when she was a kid with her grandma. And so her skepticism doesn't come from a place of thinking she knows better. It comes from a place of abject fear. Yeah. She does not want to believe this stuff is real. She can convince herself there's a logical answer. So then when you get that final gut punch moment that Thaisa is probably a part of whatever weird supernatural shenanigans is going on and did sell it, did buy into it, that is just like, such a brutally good moment and i think the other thing that people like really love about this show there's this brilliant article in the new yorker called the rival shows of yellow jackets uh written by a woman called andrea long and it is like so good because it basically just talks about how the reason the show is so good is because it's two shows it's a survival horror show and then it's like a suburban domestic thriller And I think that's the thing that really pulls people in. If you don't want to see someone's leg getting chopped off with an axe, you can like close your eyes for one minute and the next minute you're in this funny, dark, comedy, surreal kind of midlife crisis, suburban thriller where like, I mean, also the the other characters in this world are so good. Like Shauna's husband, Jeff, who was a teen sweetheart of another one of the girls on the plane and and ends up marrying Shauna, you know, he has one of the best lines in the show, which has like absolutely really nothing to do with anything else. But he discovers this great secret that Shauna has. And as she's been kind of going about her secret life, she's been telling him that she has book club and and he discovers the secret. And she's like, I can't believe you thought I was going to book club all this time. And he goes, this is a book club. I describe it to a friend. There is a great humor like bottle episode late in the season. So this is Shauna's husband again, uh, Mm -hmm. where you get a lot of time with them. And it is, there are so many crazy twists and turns. And I described it to a friend as if, imagine if the Sopranos gave like Artie Bucco a bottle episode. It's kind of like that. And you're absolutely Mm -hmm. right. Like you, you really delve into their relationships, which are, I mean, there's, I just kept being like, like, Shauna and Jeff, y'all need to communicate. Like the amount of miscommunications that have resulted (laughs) in various crimes, including murder, are just like dumbfounding. Please, I beg you, go to couples therapy and talk about stuff. So you stop. The other thing that was like absolutely so funny and and I mean, and like, so after all of these various crimes unfold, but then they then they talk about stuff, and they and you realize, you know, uh, uh, Shauna realizes uh, that uh, Jeff wasn't cheating. Jeff realizes that there's no book club. Yada yada yada. 
a murder has been committed and a, a, a blackmail attempt has been committed by Jeff on Shauna's friends. Uh, they're just. Which is like the absolute <laughs> triggering, yeah, inciting conflict of the whole season. If he didn't blackmail them, none, none of this it. drama stuff would have happened in the modern day. But he just needs money to save his furniture shop. A hilariously yeah, regular, suburban, like, like nonsense. After all of this has gone down, they're yeah. just like hanging out on the couch. Now that it's all out in the open, like this relief, this weight off their shoulders has happened. And they're just like hanging out, watching TV, like flirting, like the clock has turned back like 10 years. Like they've rediscovered mm-hmm. the, the juice and the fire and the passion again. And it is just so absurd and funny. I, I have to talk about what I think is like the real... If there's one character that I think is the star of this, that is the unique character that I don't know if I've ever seen anybody like this before, it's Misty, played by Samantha Hanratty in the in the past and yes. Christina Ricci in the first in the future. She is kind of like a a misery type character. It's like maybe too attached, a, a mm-hmm. stalkery, but also like known quality has like a yes, she poisons people, but she does it for good reasons. she the thing about misty is like i read a great interview with christina ricci where she sort of basically said like all misty wants is to be accepted but the girls are yeah but the girls are absolutely right to never truly bring her into the fold because there's something off about her but then that just makes her behavior worse and worse and when we first meet her in the pilot she's kind of this She's like the assistant right. to the coach of the football team and nobody seems to really want her around. Definitely not the coach or his assistant coach, Ben, but she's very passionate and everyone kind of ignores her and she's a little bit like people think she's frumpy or ever. But once she gets on the island, she is suddenly like this total badass who knows everything about survival. And because she is essentially a sociopath she has no qualms in just chopping off people's legs if they need to be chopped off and she's, she's the reason, the they, reason they she's survive. also the reason they, and so that would never rescue because she destroyed the black box but, <laughs> but exactly she knows how to amputate a leg she knows how to do a shockingly good plastic surgery she uh <laughs> and then <laughs> later on like uh, you know she keeps Natalie from relapsing because she had placed a Mm -hmm. hidden camera in her apartment and knew that she was about to do cocaine. And so then rushes over and keeps her from uh, doing cocaine while snorting a little bit of the cocaine. She uh, kidnaps Thais's like a shady fixer character to keep uh, them from being blackmailed slash uh, get evidence taken from them by this person. Like she just does all kinds of shit that is, clearly illegal absolutely unjustifiable morally wrong but they also really need the yellow jackets need misty to be doing this stuff because (laughs) they themselves are so fucked up really interesting character fun character yeah she is really i think they do a really good job where from the pilot to to the audience we know that she is dangerous we see her destroy the black box so that's the reason they're never found you know and i i love that it's a really good 90s reference there's this uh there's this old teen horror movie called the hole with Dora birch and a bunch of other people and kira knightley and they and they go down to this like weird underground bunker for a party 
and then they can't get out because the guy never turns up, right? But the end of the movie, you learn that the final girl, Thora Birch, she had the key the whole time, but wanted to stay there with them because suddenly she had friends, you know? So I felt like that was a really good, like, misty kind of horror reference. But the rest of the girls, they just know there's something off, but they don't really know what it is until you get to the final episode where it's revealed that, you know, Misty, like, <laughs> drugged them all with magic Which, mushrooms. Which, by the way, is... And they have, like, a sexy blood orgy. Maybe more, that she has poisoned people. Uh, Like, Coach at one point says, God, I think Misty poisoned me again. Like, like, Misty... Again. She definitely poisons him the first time, and and then he realizes what's going on and is a bit, like, she's a bit misery about him. So he pretends that he, like, feels the same way about her but won't do well, anything he, about it to survive. I was very impressed yeah. by Coach Ben. He's very clever. Very Hanging clever on man. by a thread just but yeah, trying I think to that not like... get poisoned slash misery killed, maimed <laughs> by a... Yeah. yeah or... or, like, eaten. Because that is the thing that we haven't really talked about. So, so Yellow Jacket's pilot begins with the a girl running through a forest, ending up in a pit, getting yeah. strung up and bled out. And and throughout, you you go through and you kind of learn about what happened in the 90s and, and the, the plane crash. And, and, you, and throughout, they're showing you these strange montage of like these antler-headed people eating what is most likely human meat. And then at the end, you get the reveal that that is the girl's at some point because Misty takes off a mask, right? So this is a show about cannibalism and it is such a huge boon to this show that it is about cannibalism and we haven't mentioned cannibalism once yet because everything else about the show is more interesting somehow. But the cannibalism adds this like very, it adds to that like feral, animalistic survival kind of nature and it really fits into the the way that they explore like women and horror in this show and like the idea of like, women as like these kind of animalistic feral creatures and this this paganistic idea of like how women can connect with nature or how young people can connect with nature and it is extremely interesting and if you were probably gonna like say the logline from the pilot you'd be like oh it's you got to find out who the antler queen is you got to find out who's the one wearing the thing who everyone's sitting around eating this meat but by the time the show's over everyone's got their favorite thing is it misty is it jeff is it the fact that Sean is secretly maybe the craziest one of yeah. all and is like a very talented human butcher. Like there's so much about this show to love that that aspect of it, they have to bring you back in at the end with the crazy, the kidnapping and Thais's blood altar because otherwise you're just like, whoa, I just, I care so much about all these weird fucked like, up characters. Like who cares if they ate a little they human been, meat? Well, like, here's my theory on what happened. Like I think some of this is pretty obvious. So Lottie is... is schizophrenic and her medication is running out and as she is kind of like losing her grip she has made various predictions that you know honestly are pretty random but have come true essentially or very easy to see connections between the things she says and what actually ends up happening and i think as has already kind of happened she develops like a cult of a, of a prophet around her. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe there's more mushrooms that happen. Maybe there's, they eat something in the woods that, that, that affects them in a kind of like psychedelic manner that kind of amplifies the effects of Lottie. But I think the basic thing is they come to view Lottie as a prophet and the kind of like 
uh, you know, community hallucination effect that led them to almost commit a murder intensifies and they end up eating and probably cannibalizing people. Now, I think Lottie, I think Lottie's alive and then she stays there. I think she doesn't want to leave. The rest of them, either however they're rescued, whether they hike out or people come to get them, leave. But I think Lottie stays and I think like builds on this like cult and these are the mm. people that are then kidnapping the women because I guess maybe they want them back or something. Like Lottie wants them back. Yeah, I was wondering if she yeah. wants to rebuild the found family. And I also thought that something, I think something that's really interesting is like, we don't really know, yeah. apart from the main four, Misty, Shauna, Taisa, and uh, Natalie. Yeah, we don't know who survives or who is an adult and who isn't. And I've seen some really interesting kind of stuff about like, is it really Lottie who is running the cult or is because Lo- because Lottie was the one who was right. on the island who created the cult does like oh, that's interesting, now run yeah. the cult, but use the name yeah. Lottie. You know, things like that. Because I think, I think people are really excited to potentially see the adult versions of these characters. So it's really interesting to see kind of who and what will happen in the next season. And I think there's so much interesting stuff because I think that the way that Lottie copes with the crash, she almost like subconsciously learns from Misty, which is this idea of like doing whatever it takes to survive and to create this space. And in a way, Lottie is actually just the person who is best equipped to survive this absolutely wild, insane set of events because she manages to create a a structure and a space that embraces where they live that will allow them to survive but it's also like horrific and violent and cannibalistic and deranged and unhinged, but so is where they are. So if they just sat there and tried to, you know, catch a fish or whatever, that they might not have been able to survive. And I find that duality like really interesting, especially in the context of like the the other thing that we haven't really spoken about is there is a question of is the wilderness and nature right, like a sentient it, creature? Right in yellow jackets is it stopping them from leaving does it want them to be there and that adds a whole other thing because it's very much that is it real is it not is that just how they think about it and they're so desperate to make sense that they keep connecting these things together that's or is it real there's another part of this which is that you know the symbol was carved into the tree when they arrived uh they find a cabin Mm -hmm. of like a hunter who his skeleton is like in the upstairs attic. He's deceased. He was not able to fly his plane out. What was going on there before the girls came there? Was there something kind of like lost way that caused their plane to crash at that spot? Um, That is, remains to be explored. Excited to see where that goes. Do you have any uh, particular theories about that or about anything here? Yeah, I, I think I definitely felt like the this the symbol already being there feels like they crashed into right. someone else's territory. And I think that's like the big the big kind of like what's gonna happen next. But yeah, I mean I definitely think Thais is in the cult. I think that she did a blood sacrifice to win. And I think that we could see some really interesting stuff about someone in that cult being in a really powerful position of state center and how that could Effect. Do you think she's aware that she's doing like, it, or is uh, or is it part of her? I part think of her, it's like the, fractured consciousness. I think there's these two kind of 
sides of Thaisa. There's like almost like the dark yeah. passenger kind of side where it's like the person who's eating the dirt, who's sleepwalking. But I think that the moment at the end when she smiles, I feel like that's kind of a, a melding of the two where Thaisa's realizing like, oh, there's this like bad part right. of me, like her son calls her the woman in the tree, you know, the bad one. Right, there's, there's a power what I can there. achieve yeah. when there's a power she is in control. That I, can, that I can leverage, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I really, um, this is less of a theory, but I just like want to see more Misty because she's just so absolutely bonkers. I guess the, the biggest questions. So one thing I really want to see, there is a thread throughout this season where Shauna is having yeah. an affair with this younger guy. And it seems like maybe he is the blackmailer and maybe he is Harvey, yeah. one of the three men who survived on the island, who was a young boy. And, and he seemed to have a connection with Shauna. That is right. not the case. That's what the showrunners have said. He's not Harvey. And at the end, Shauna kills him <laughs> and uh, very brutally then well, dismembers well, him having, absolutely well, casually a very before her evening in. They're chopping him up and then yeah. she and Misty are just like chatting. And but. Natalie's like, Natalie's like, oh yeah, she's like, did oh, you remember how to do this? Like, yeah, you didn't forget. It's like, yeah. So we know they've chopped up a human before. Shauna is the butcher for sure. And... I really want to see where that thread goes because I think that is one of like secretly the saddest and most brutal parts of this show is like Shauna's own paranoia and kind of trauma triggered by her husband blackmailing her friends caused her to kill this guy that she actually had this really deep like loving connection with and I'm really interested to see whether it's kind of a whether it goes in a justice for Adam type situation where he really was just some simple dude that just happened to really like her or if they're going to go in a route where he has like a a more deep kind of darker connection because yeah. he had read the book about the yellow jackets and th there was an aspect of maybe he was like a creepy fanboy. so i i really want to see that uh i want to see misty murder some more people i i love that she she murdered taisa's fixer well, we don't know that we don't, by injecting we don't her know cigarettes with fentanyl she is truly the well, I was, yeah, yeah. if she's dead okay but my, what I loved about I, that is it was very much in the mold of Misty. Being, she's like, I like to protect my friends. And she told Jessica, the fixer, she said, don't smoke. It will kill you. And Jessica was like, please just give me the cigarettes. And Jessica smokes the cigarette, passes out, and we see a flashback of Misty injecting. I'm like, if you listen to Misty and didn't smoke the cigarette, Misty, you'd be fine. Never eat or drink or smoke <laughs> around Misty or take, eat or imbibe anything nope. that she has given you. I... Okay. Yeah. Misty theory quickly and a question. Do you think Misty has been eating people? Because I do believe that she, the men that she brings home with her when she goes on these bad dates or the old people from the home, I think she could be the one who still has a taste for I human think, flesh, even I if don't she's not think in the cult. I anybody is continuing to eat people, but I do think these blood sacrifices maybe be continuing. Outside of Thaisa, there's a really mm. great shot that is so fun and it's the, the core four uh, Shauna, Natalie, Misty, Taisa, at the reunion, the high school reunion, and they all kind of, mm -hmm. they do a slow walk that felt very much like a classic getting the team back together moment, either in a heist movie or a superhero <laughs> movie or whatever. And I think that there is, you know, obviously this is my frame of mind and I'm primed to always think like this, but it felt like a superhero team moment, like, oh, the team is back. So I think yeah. we're much like uh, you were mentioning with Thaisa and this dark part of herself that like uh, leveraging this power to win uh, the state Senate election. I think we're going to discover that like there's a power in those four together. 
something about what they did mm-hmm. on the island and what maybe they're continuing to do outside of it is engaged when they are together. And I think maybe Misty, like I would not mm. be shocked to discover that Misty was sending the postcards. You know what I mean? Like that she, just, yeah, to, yeah, get yeah, just to get them back, back the, you know, like in that, in the beginning of that kind of like slow motion walk, she sees them, the three of them and is taking a picture with somebody else and immediately mm-hmm. leaves and rushes over to be part of the group. I think that there is some kind of like power unlock with the four of them that will be important. And yeah. I, I'm really excited to see where that particular thing goes. Any other uh, final theories before we move on? I think the biggest one is probably that Lottie or whoever is posing as Lottie will be like mm. a big bad in season two. And that we'll have to see the three of them team up, Misty, Shauna, Ty, to get ah. Natalie back. And that will probably throw them into that world of the cult. And I'm assuming that while we're learning more about the world of the cult in the contemporary, we will learn about how it was built in 1996, uh, My one online. other thing is that I think that as Lottie becomes this like figurehead, I think that Misty kind of becomes Misty who loves to be part of things and loves being close to the powerful person. Um, I think Misty, and this is hinted at in the opening scene of the very first episode, I think Misty kind of becomes like the right hand person of Lottie, kind of like her mm-hmm. manager, her connection to like what is actually going on and the yeah. person who like carries out the things that Lottie wants. Um, and then I think that leads to whatever the split is that, you know, like Misty obviously did not, does not remain. So interested to see how that unfolds. Man, yeah. fun show. Season two is going to be a lot. I think a lot of people are really watching it. I, it was fun to watch people like find the show, like through social media. Can't wait to talk about mm-hmm. it more with you. Uh, up next, our Nerd Out segment. In this week's Nerd Out, a recurring segment where you tell us what you love and why Ben pitches us on Super Sentai. I also wanted to add that I finished Alan Kushner's Swords Point. Thank you, Megan, for the rec on Nerd Out. Really, really fun and unique approach to fantasy the way i pitched it to somebody is it's like bridgerton meets game of thrones with no magic you know i've I've, i don't know that i've really read a fantasy slash medievalist kind of story that so delved into the importance of like courtly manners and the way people engage with each other in these kind of like very public settings where the ritual of how you address someone and like how you eat Really, really matters for like the overarching politics of the world. Really, really cool story. Read it if you have time. Ellen Kushner is a great writer. I really enjoyed it. Okay, let's go to Ben. Hello, my name is Ben, and this is a uh, nerd out submission about uh, Super Sentai, the Japanese version of Power Rangers. I guess it could also include Power Rangers. Question one, how did I get into slash discover it? Uh, When I was three years old, my friend Eric came up to me and asked if I'd ever heard of Power Rangers, and uh, I've been hooked ever since. That was about 30 years ago. Um, I eventually got more into the Japanese stuff because uh, I realized that the the storylines and the writing of the Power Rangers show is obviously kind of juvenile, but the gadgets and the robots and the costumes were the thing I was really in it for. Question two, why should everyone else get into it too? I mean, this this series is nearly 50 years old. Super Sentai started in Japan in the 70s, and you have to believe that it has staying power for a reason. I mean, I, for me, it is a masterclass in 
totally wacky creativity within a very specific set of constraints. Like you can have almost any theme you want in a in a Super Sentai show. Ninjas, dinosaurs, trains, animals. There's some spin-offs that feature horror movie characters or video games or fruit, but also at the same time there's some elements you have to have. You have to have uh, robots, you have to have some kind of cool weapon, you have to have some kind of transformation device. Like, how do you do that with ninja stars versus how do you do that with fruit? Uh, makes for, in my opinion, a fascinating kind of like creative exercise. So, like, think of like a season where someone transforms using tuning forks and they use uh, their weapons or musical instruments. Or a Super Sentai series that had two teams of heroes, one that's like cops and one that's like uh, uh, like gentlemen thieves, uh, like like Lupin, the Netflix show, basically like squaring off against each other. It's wild. It's totally wild. And it's so much fun and so ridiculous. Three, what's coming soon in this world that people can look forward to? There's a new season every single year. And every year is like totally different, totally ridiculous. The next season's airing in February. It's called... Avataro Sentai Don Brothers, and which I have no idea what that means, and it's based on uh, the Japanese legend Momotaro Peach Boy. So promises to be totally insane and totally wild, and I would love to share it with more people uh, and hope I get to share it with, uh, with X-Ray Vision. So looking forward to hearing from you. Happy New Year. Thanks, Ben, for submitting. If you want to be featured, send your nerd out pitch and voice memos to x-ray at crooked.com. Instructions in the show notes. Up next, the end game. Okay, folks, we're in the end game now. And today, Rosie and I ponder how we would fare in a yellow jacket style wilderness religious cult survival scenario. Here's the context it is fall heading into winter, cabin in the woods, there's nobody else around. You have a gun with weirdly unlimited ammo. And you're there with a few survivors. What is your plan, Rosie? You go first. Um, I would probably die. That's just the re. I'm yes. gonna start with the realistic aspect. I like. That's how my girlfriend and a lot of her friends are like. They're like, just kill you know, me. I don't want to. I I, <laughs> I really like being cozy. I hate getting splinters. I don't particularly like eating, you know, random animal meat, but. I did go camping a lot when I was a kid. I know how to like whittle things with a knife. I think I can remember how to start a fire. Uh, So I think I would probably look for some kind of shelter because the cabin I think is a really, really smart addition to yellow jackets. So you don't have to live full Lord of the Flies. So I try and look for shelter, hide and make friends with whoever it was who had the gun. (laughs) I I honestly think I'd do great. (laughs) I'm an avid camper, but more importantly, I've spent a lot of time, uh, you know, not recently, but when it came out, I've spent a lot of time playing the game of the forest, a zombie survival game in which you survive a plane crash and you land on an island. And it turns out that the island is populated by zombie, like zombie tribalists who like killed the other survivors of the plane crash and ate them. Mm. They also live underground in this kind of like descent like existence of like pseudo mutation. And basically you have to like chop down trees, create spears, build like log cabins, hunt for fish, dry the fish out so you can have stuff to eat, collect rainwater. You have to do all the survival stuff 
while surviving constant attacks by these like mutated zombies. And I gotta say, I I'm really good at that game. So I think I would. You have the guidebook already. Like you've you've practiced. I've practiced it. I've done it. I've survived multiple days all the way up until like you get attacked by this like super mutated worm that basically is unstoppable. <laughs> so I think I'd be okay at least for a few weeks. Uh, how would you do? How would you do in a post-apocalyptic scenario? Do you want to live? Do you want to survive? Or do you are you just like, you know what? Life sucks in a survival cannibal scenario. I want to check out. And honestly, that's a fair, that's a fair opinion. Let us know what you think. Hit us with the hashtag XRV game to give us your thoughts and panic. Big thank you to Jason Manzukas and Rosie Knight for joining us on X-Ray Vision. If you want to learn more about the things we explore in each episode, check out our listener's guide to all things talked about on the show. In the show notes on our website, catch the next episode on January 28th. And again, send us your nerd out submissions to X-Ray at Crooked.com. Don't forget to hit us with five-star ratings wherever you get your podcast. We need those five-star ratings, folks. Nothing but five stars will do. Vision is a crooked media production. The show is produced by Chris Lord and Saul Rubin. The show is executive produced by myself and Sandy Gerard. Caroline Reston and Carlton Gillespie are our consulting producers, and our editing and sound design is by Felix Fotopoulos. Thank you, Brian Vasquez, for our theme music. Bye.